you'll never be able to explain democracy to a dog, so it doesn't really matter whether you <laughs> think about it. Exactly. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of Thoughts. I'm Callum. And I'm Jonah. And on this episode, we interviewed Dr. Derek Bull, who is a lecturer at the University of St. Andrews. In this episode, we talked about free speech from a linguistic perspective and covered topics including content constraints, Mill's marketplace of ideas, and the notion of having adequate resources. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi there, Derek. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, to start off, we were just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to land upon the topic of free speech. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, so my background is mostly in philosophy of mind and philosophy of language, less in political philosophy. So this is kind of a new topic for me. And the way that I came to it was I've thought a lot about issues about um, how our words come to have the meanings that they have and how we come to be able to think about some things and not to be able to think about others. So if you start thinking about this, it can seem strange or, or surprising in some cases. So um, think about a word like dog. Uh, in some sense, that's just a sound, but we use it to talk about a particular kind of thing. Now we could have used that same sound to talk about something else, maybe in other languages they do, uh, but in our language, we've, we've hooked up this sound with a particular kind of animal. And uh, so initial question, how did that happen? Like, what, what is it that we had to do to get that sound hooked up to dogs rather than cats or cars or atoms or, or whatever? Um, and different philosophers have had different kinds of ideas about this. One prominent idea in the, research, in the recent literature on this is that it must have something to do with causation. Uh, Hilary Putnam is one famous 20th century philosopher who, uh, who defended this kind of idea. He was really interested in skepticism and the idea that we might be brains in vats, like in the matrix or something, where we're, we're getting fed all of our perceptions by a computer and don't have any real contact with the outside world. But he wanted to suggest that brains in vats um, couldn't really think about things outside the vat. So a brain in a vat might have an imagination uh, as of a tree, it would look just like when we imagine a tree, they, they would have the sick qualitatively just the same mental image. But Putnam said theirs wouldn't be about trees. It wouldn't, they wouldn't really be thinking about trees because they haven't had the right kind of interaction with trees. Um, so, uh, so I think this is a really interesting claim. Whether or not it's true is, is an interesting question. Uh, but this idea that the kind of environment that we're in determines what we can talk about and what we can think about, I think is a really interesting one that, in my view, has some interesting implications for free speech. There's uh, a few interesting things uh, that we could dive into there. Um, maybe first, though, could you maybe talk about your own... Uh, so, so you mentioned that free speech has quite a long history in political philosophy in particular. 
Um, but it sounds like you're more coming at it from a linguistic uh, angle, as you said. How did you uh, wind up there in your own uh, journey within philosophy? Uh, maybe where did you where where did you start, and and how did you kind of specialize into this area? Yeah, well, I I guess there are a few things. Um, so one kind of interesting phenomenon that has been discussed a lot in recent philosophy um, in the context of talking about what people call hermeneutical injustice. Um, so this is the idea that some people in virtue of prejudice or in virtue of their identities might be uh, might not have equal access to uh, the creation of conceptual and linguistic resources and so might end up deprived of resources that they need in order to make sense of their own experiences. And, and so one kind of example, which was influentially um, uh, discussed in this literature um, uh, is uh, the, the idea of sexual harassment. Uh, so this was a, an experience that a lot of people were, were having, being sexually harassed, but uh, they didn't have the right kind of conceptual apparatus or vocabulary to, to think about it appropriately. And so a lot of people were suffering uh, in, in part because, uh, or at least this is what people claim in this literature, that uh, they, they didn't have an appropriate way of conceptualizing this thing that was happening to them. And, and they were prevented from having that because of the kind of um, societal situation that, that they found themselves in. Um, so I think that's quite an interesting case, quite different than Putnam's brains and vats from one point of view, but, but similar in another way that, that there's this idea that's really hard to latch onto if you're in a certain kind of situation, an idea that maybe you in some sense really need. Um, so, so thinking about that, um, uh, I started thinking about what kinds of resources do we need in order to really have free speech. Um, it seems that someone with no conceptual or linguistic resources at all, or very limited kinds of resources, wouldn't really have free speech, even if nobody is telling them what to say or putting sort of external constraints, like sending them to jail if they say the wrong thing. It's, it somehow doesn't seem like the kind of free speech that we would really want. We, we need to, to be able to say something interesting in order for this freedom to be worthwhile. And so that's, that's how I, I came to be thinking about some of these language mind kind of issues about where our concepts come from, what, where, how our words get the meanings that they do, and how those might be restricted in different ways might bear on this idea about free speech. And how do you think that's different from the kind of more classic ways that other philosophers have approached the issue of free speech, which does seem to be more about kind of imposing legal constraints or that kind of thing? Yeah, well, um, that, that's a, a good question. So I think if you think about someone like John Stuart Mill, Mill had maybe the most influential discussion of free speech in philosophy. Um, and... A lot of his arguments are um, uh, sort of practical in, in nature. So Mill says, 
you want to know the truth. You want to have true beliefs and not have false beliefs. Well, um, even if you're pretty confident that you already know the truth, and you might be tempted to get people with the opposite view to just you know, go away and be quiet, to sort of restrict their free speech, that's actually not a good idea because by just letting everyone talk, the good arguments will come to the fore and the bad arguments will be revealed in their badness. And that way, everybody will come to know the truth much more effectively than if you tried to dictate what people could, can, and can't say. Um, so so this, is an, this is an influential kind of thought about free speech, that it's a, it's a, it's a means to an end, that if you just allow people to, to talk and work out ideas for themselves, uh, the truth will come out. There are various reasons why you might be skeptical of that. Maybe Mill is being a bit optimistic about how, how effectively the truth will come out under these kind of circumstances. But, but I think something that Mill is definitely ignoring, or that this kind of reasoning is definitely ignoring, is um, it, it might be that if we're able to express all the truths we're interested in, if we have the right kind of conceptual and linguistic resources to talk about things, then we can evaluate all the claims that we want to evaluate. But if we can't even formulate, if there's something that it would be useful for us to know, but we can't even formulate it, we, we don't have the right concepts to think about that thing, then it's not clear that talking about it and sort of revealing which one is false and which one is true is really the right thing to do. So if you think about Putnam again, for example, put, if, if we, we wanted to know the truths about trees, but we never had the right kind of causal perceptual interaction with trees that Putnam thinks is necessary. Well, letting everybody talk isn't going to help. In order to get that, we've got to actually go out and, and see the tree. And so, uh, so free speech, unrestricted speech, isn't always going to be the most effective means to the end of coming to know the truth if we don't already have the right ways of expressing those truths or the right way of thinking of those, the, those phenomena. So, so in short, I think, I, I think some of these, uh, you know, there's something right plausibly about Mill's idea, but but once you have this picture that our conceptual and linguistic resources might be limited in certain ways, um, taking into account those limitations uh, is going to, seems to me, to be a, a really important feature of free speech that's been neglected by some of this historical thinking. Well, maybe that's a good point to uh, talk about uh, content constraints. Could, yeah, could you maybe just tell us a bit about what, you, what that term means um, and how it's been used? Yeah, good. So um, once, once you start thinking that what concepts we have, what meanings we're able to express, what our words could mean, is in part a product of our environment, the kinds of things we've interacted with, maybe our social environment, our, our position of privilege or subordination within that. Um, then it can seem that our, our conceptual resources are constrained by those features. So, for example, Putnam's brains and vats just can't think about 
physical, external things like trees, according to Platham. That's a kind of constraint based on how they're located in their environment. They just can't sort of mentally latch on to these external objects, or again, so Putnam thought. Um, so the basic idea of a content constraint is that in virtue of uh, your location within your environment, your experiences, what kinds of things you've interacted with, your social environment, and so on, you might be, there might be some thoughts and some meanings that are just unavailable to you in some sense, so that you, you just can't think about those things. Um, and, and so my thought is that then that taking into account these content constraints is going to be important for, for thinking about free speech, because content constraints are limitations on your conceptual and linguistic resources and um, getting rid of those limitations or taking steps to prevent limitations from coming into place could be important from the point of view of free speech. Can I just uh, ask you quickly about that Putnam example of the brains and vats and, and trees? I mean, it would seem to me that uh, I've got no way of knowing that I'm not a brain in a vat for example um and even if i'm not my brain is in the vat that is my skull so you know my my perception of a tree uh is still being fed through you know it's still in some sense kind of an illusion that's created by my brain uh so why would that why is that uh way of talking about trees maybe different or or maybe less true than uh, yeah, why, why is the idea of a tree different if it's, it's maybe a virtual tree rather than a real tree? And that's maybe straying away to a different topic, but um, I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, we, we could talk about this all day, I think. But um, uh, so, um, so I think that Putnam is assuming that uh, a virtual tree is a different kind of thing than a tree. And so a thought about a virtual tree is about, not about a tree, but about something else. Um, now it's true that uh, from the point of view of the brains in vats, things will seem to them just as they seem to us. But Putnam thought um, when the words, uh, there is a tree run through their brain, uh, those words don't mean there is a tree. They mean there is a virtual tree. Mm -hmm. And if, if the brain in a bat says, oh, I remember sitting under a tree one sunny afternoon, uh, they don't remember that they sat under a tree. They remember, uh, well, a little bit hard to express this all in virtual, but you know, they virtually sat under a virtual tree. Mm -hmm. So I, I see your point, and, and you might think that's just wrong, that maybe in some sense we do have the same ideas as them. Um, and I don't want to rest too much on Putnam's particular idea about what constraints we might be under. That's more just like an example. Um, in fact, this idea about, um, about constraints runs very deep through the history of philosophy, I think, although it's, rad, it, it's rarely, if ever, drawn out as, as a thread 
in quite the way that that I want to do it. So if you think about the British empiricists, for example, people like Locke and Hume, they thought that all of our ideas, all of our concepts, everything we could think about had to come from experience. So Hume says ideas are copies of impressions, where impressions are like perceptions and experiences. And that's a kind of constraint, too. So, so Hume says uh, you can't have the idea of the taste of pineapple unless you've actually tasted pineapple. There's just no way you can get that idea without doing it. Um, if you were sympathetic to that kind of constraint, I think that would suggest something like what you were saying about the Putnam brains and bats case. The brains, they have the same experiences as us. At least that seems quite plausible. So they're going to have the same ideas. Um, if they haven't had the virtual taste of pineapple, they won't have that idea. Uh, and, and likewise with us, if we haven't had that experience, we can't get that idea. So that's, that's quite a different kind of constraint and a different way of thinking about what our conceptual resources are than, than how Putnam was thinking about it. But structurally similar, it's, it's saying what you can think about is, is limited by um, where you've been, what you've done. And so relating the idea of content constraints back to kind of free speech specifically, are there many instances or should we be worried about instances of people actively trying to suppress what people can think about? Or is it more we need to be proactive in making sure that people have all the opportunities to think about things? Yeah, so that, that's a very interesting question. I think if you think about uh, ways in which free speech has been restricted uh, by uh, totalitarian regimes, for example. Um, but also if you think about um, what's happening in many U.S. states where, uh, like Florida, where they're trying to restrict how people are taught about sexuality, um, Although the, the constraints are superficially on what you're allowed to say, it does look like the target is preventing people from being in a position to entertain certain ideas at all. Um, you could think about this in relation to, um, well, for example, uh, something that's been influential in many people's thinking about free speech is the novel 1984. And, and in that novel, of course, there are famously lots of restrictions. People are monitored all the time in terms of what they, what they can say. But ultimately, the idea is to try to restrict what they can think so that you can really only think government-approved thoughts. Um, so this is another interesting example, maybe in some ways the most telling, I think, example of a kind of content constraint. Um, Orwell imagines in the book this language, Newspeak, and he says in an appendix that Newspeak is supposed to be designed uh, to, make, to make heretical or, or non-government approved thoughts literally unthinkable. So if Newspeak is your only language, you could only ever think approved things. And this is another, this is an, another thing that was really influential on me in, in 
turning these philosophy of language, philosophy of mind ideas to the issue of free speech. Because it seems to me that in that kind of case, if they could succeed in, in installing Newspeak and making, making everyone speak Newspeak as their only language, uh, then they wouldn't need to further restrict speech. They could drop, they could say, say whatever you like, no more rules on what you could say. Because nobody could say anything bad anyway. Nobody could say anything they wouldn't like. Uh, but I think that doesn't seem like free speech. That doesn't seem like, even though there are no more rules, it doesn't seem like real freedom. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another kind of case where, uh, although you might look at it superficially and think, well, uh, what they're trying to do is prevent you from, from talking about democracy or prevent you from talking about love or whatever, it, whatever else it is they don't like. Really, the ultimate goal is to deprive you of those conceptual resources, to introduce a kind of constraint on, on what you can even think about. And is that why it would relate back to then the Republicans in, in Florida trying to target education so people don't have, the, don't have the information to start off with to be able to have these conversations? Yeah, exactly. So, so it does seem like targeting education is a particularly insidious kind of um, uh, restriction on free speech, a particular, particular, particularly um, uh, apt to introduce a kind of content constraint. Um, that's an interesting example. The idea of um, if if Newspeak had been enforced and uh, and then the and, every, and everyone was using it, uh, would we would we still have free speech even if laws were lifted? Um, maybe for talking about how general the idea of a content constraint is. Um, because although it might seem like we're, we have the ability to speak freely, um, in some sense, we've kind of, you know, our, our evolution uh, and our cultural history has placed certain constraints on how our language has developed um, and the kinds of things that we talk about. So, I mean, would, would those kinds of things count as content constraints? Um, or is that is that kind of a bit too broad of a definition for the, the term? Yeah, that's a really good question. So uh, there can be no doubt that on almost any idea of where our concepts come from or what makes it the case that we mean what we mean by our words, um, we'll be under some kinds of constraints. So uh, we're not brains and bats. Let's suppose, um, but still, there might be life forms in distant galaxies that we haven't causally interacted with in the right kind of way. So, if Putnam's right, there are constraints on us. There are just things that we 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 can't talk about those life forms in in very much the way that brains and bats can't talk about external things. Um, there are things uh, we haven't tasted experiences we haven't had so if on that british empiricist kind of idea there'll be constraints on us due to that but i think what's interesting is uh so putnam uh and and at least i think to some extent the the, the british empiricists too um are posing a very deep and universal kind of constraint so putnam is thinking uh, this is the very nature of representation. Uh, there just couldn't be a thinker who could just latch on to anything in their thoughts. You have to have some 
means by which that happens. And it, it looks like causation is really the, the, the most plausible kind of connection between you and the things you're thinking about. So it, it's not just like it would be really hard for the brains and bats to do it, or it would take a, a really special kind of brain and bat or something like that. Um, it's, it's sort of deeply, deeply impossible for a brain and bat to, 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 to get outside the bat and think about the outside world. Um, on the other hand, if you think about the, um, the Orwell example, it does seem like even if we were all speakers of Newspeak, we might be able to, if we tried really hard or worked at it, or were sort of especially, especially sort of geniuses of political philosophy or, or whatever, maybe we could come to formulate the idea of democracy, something that there's no word for in Newspeak, but it doesn't seem in principle impossible in the way that, uh, in, in the way that if Putnam's right, brains and bats coming to think about real physical objects is in principle impossible. It's more like Newspeak poses a big obstacle. Um, it makes it really hard to think about these things, but I think you'd have to adopt an implausibly strong uh, claim about how language influences the possibility of thought to get anything as strong as Putnam's constraint there. Um, but still, I, I, it does seem to me like speakers of Newspeak would be constrained in a way. There, there's just such a big barrier between them and these ideas that it would be really good for them to have, um, that that still should count as a constraint. Exactly how far we want to take this thought, like how, uh, if, it's, if it's just sort of a little bit difficult for me to get at an idea, is that still a constraint? Well, I, I'm not so sure about that. And although that might really matter to how we should apply some of these ideas to, to free speech. So this might be something we will want to come back to in a minute. Um, but I, I think it's a good question. And as I'm thinking of it, constraints come in different strengths. There are the really strong ones like, like Putnam's, if it's true, and then much weaker ones like what Orwell's suggesting. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe also... At different layers as well, right? So you can constrict someone's speech, uh, you know, when they still have the the uh, ability to think about it. Um, and then, you know, maybe if you're taking that level up, then you're constricting their ability to think about it. And then maybe there's things that we can't even conceptualize because of the kinds of beings that we are. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good point. So most of the constraints that I have been, that I mentioned, I, I guess all of the constraints that I've mentioned are constraints on thought. Mm -hmm. so, so Putnam thinks the brains and bats couldn't, couldn't come to think about these things. Um, uh, Orwell's is an interesting example because he, he wants to, or the idea there is that you first constrain language and thereby constrain thought. But you might think that there are cases that, that look um, sort of the inverse of that, too, where there's something you can think about, but you don't have the right word for it. Um, and, and that might count as a kind of content constraint. It might matter if you think about these, um, like, um, 
the example of sexual harassment, again, um, it, it matters not only to be able to think of that in the right way, but to be able to communicate about it. And, and so it matters that other people have the right kind of understanding of it too, that that, that, that is widely shared. Um, so, so linguistic resources are, um, so the issues about how to constrain conceptual resources and, and what might constrain linguistic resources could in principle come apart to some extent, I think that seems right. Okay, so maybe we'll we'll push you on the more the more difficult question then, which is if if issues about uh, free speech aren't just limited to kind of physical constraints, but are also limited to uh, the kind of abilities people have, then where do we where do we draw a kind of coherent line on what free speech is and what it requires? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, so one thing that is suggested to me by uh, thinking about examples like Newspeak and, um, and, and Orwell's story is that you don't count as having free speech unless you have adequate conceptual and linguistic resources. The, the conceptual and linguistic resources of the Newspeak speakers are just too restricted. So, so even if you don't regulate what they can say uh, they they just can't kind of can't say anything worth saying anyway. So um, so that's not something that we should count as as genuine free speech, even if it is unrestricted in some sense, not not externally constrained kind of speech. But then the crucial question is, uh, what makes for adequate resources? Um, and uh, I I don't have a a well-worked-out view of this. I think it's a really difficult question. Um, I think there are different uh, there are different possibilities here that would be worth uh, working through in some detail. So one possibility is um, we shouldn't be thinking that there is a cutoff. Like if you have this much resources, that counts as free speech. The less than this doesn't count as free speech. Instead, there's kind of a spectrum. And so there's, there's freer and less free, uh, sort of more free speech and less free speech, but there's no freedom period. Or, or if there is, if that's, that is a sort of arbitrary line we draw on the, on the spectrum of more, more and less. So that's one kind of perspective that I think is really worth thinking through because and, and would require some significant revision to how we're ordinarily thinking about this question. We ordinarily think, well, it's an unalienable human right to freedom of speech. Uh, but if there's really no absolute freedom of speech, only more and less, where does that leave this thought that there's a, that there's a unalienable human right? Well, um, I, I'm not sure. I think that's, that's an interesting question that, that needs further thought. Uh, so, so that's one one thought that I have here. Um, a, another kind of thought would be to try to cash out the notion of adequacy and thinking about adequate resources in terms of something like people's needs. So, your conceptual and linguistic resources are adequate, just in case they put you in a position to meet your needs. Uh, what needs exactly? Well, again, that's that's an interesting question. Um, 
it couldn't just be, I think, for this for this to really be satisfying as a theory of free speech, it couldn't be just uh, keeping yourself alive, like food and shelter kind of needs, because new speak speakers could presumably have that. Mm-hmm. It would have to include things like um, uh, like things you need to um, to understand your own experiences, to maintain your dignity, perhaps also uh, things that you might need for um, uh, well, even um, even even things that are perhaps less natural for us to think of as as needs, like. To, to to participate in your uh, in your society, to entertain yourself. I don't know. So there's an interesting question there. If we think that we can cash out this notion of adequacy in terms of the notion of needs, exactly exactly what needs count, and and how can we um, how can we draw a principled line there? I suppose maybe another difficult thing there is um, the fact that. You know, one person's definition of what needs are is going to be very different to another person. So, I mean, maybe if the law reached a place where it said, this is what your needs are and this is what you require to be able to access through your speech for your speech to be considered free. But then what if someone disagrees with that law? Uh, you know, are they allowed to voice <laughs> that, that opinion? Um, that's maybe quite an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And um, so, so what it's reasonable to count as a need, it uh, might be very contingent. So it might vary across times and societies. It might also vary across people. Um, I, I'm really not sure how to think about this, but, but I think that raises a lot of interesting issues. So the thing that keeps coming come to mind, and this may be too different an analogy is the idea of kind of children and how they're developing because you could kind of imagine that maybe a toddler has the kind of adequate resources to be asking for food and kind of water and explaining that they need to have sleep and that kind of stuff but i'm not sure if you would then say that that they have the same kind of level of freedom of speech as a fully fledged adult although maybe you would um so would how situational are adequate resources? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I could imagine, again, someone thinking, well, uh, they are less free than an adult because they have fewer conceptual and linguistic resources. They just haven't learned the words. They don't have the concepts yet. Um, and, and, and if we're thinking in this more free, less free kind of way, um, that is a way of being less free. On the other hand, you might think, well, um, they're meeting all the needs they've got. They don't have the kind of need to, uh, for political participation in society, for example, that, uh, that adults might have. And, and so it, it doesn't, giving them the resources to meet that, that, to have that wouldn't really help them. That's not something that they need at all. So, um, yeah, I, I could see multiple. I, I think it's a it's a good case. Uh, I could I can see multiple ways of thinking about it. I mean, I suppose one idea might be the fact that, uh, you know, when a baby's crying, you don't necessarily know why it's 
crying which can be quite infuriating if you know you don't know Mm. if it's tired or if it needs you know changing or if it's hungry um so maybe in that sense its speech is restricted and, and doesn't allow it to meet its basic needs um but then on a conceptual level maybe the baby doesn't also know what it needs so it's not thinking you know the baby's not sitting there thinking if only i had the language to be able to (laughs) to say what i need yeah i i think that's so so the case of small children and, and maybe especially babies is it it raises a couple of interesting issues here because it does seem like there is it's kind of a problem for babies. Like they don't have the resources they need to communicate what they, you know, to get their needs met sometimes. Um, on the other hand, I think we don't, um, given, given uh, who they are or, or how they are at that time, they can't have those resources. So it, it's not as though there's some externally imposed constraint that, that we could overcome. It's just that uh, they, they just aren't at a stage of intellectual development where they, they could have those resources yet. Um, and so I, I, think, I, I think this matters because you could think that there are constraints, like maybe there are mathematical concepts that are just too complicated for humans to understand. Uh, and that's a kind of constraint on us. But it doesn't seem like, even, even if that mathematical concept would be really useful, it doesn't seem like a violation of our free speech or anything, because it's just who we are. We, we just kind of can't... Um, uh, it's, it's not an... It's in no sense an externally imposed or overcomable kind of constraint. Um, and, and, and so the case of babies seems a bit like that. Even if it would be better for them to have it, uh, they can't have it. So, uh, so that makes it seem less relevant to this kind of issue. You'll never be able to explain democracy to a dog. So it doesn't really <laughs> matter whether you think about it. Exactly. <laughs> I, I was going to just ask... Uh, so maybe that would mean that, uh, you know, in terms of our definition of content constraint, we should be focusing more on the constraints which are in our control and which are enforced by other agents rather than things like nature or, um, you know, the kinds of things that we are. Do you think that would be a fair, um, a fair point? Or do, you, or do you think there are maybe instances in which there are things like mathematical um, complexities or, or things that are, are naturally enforced that are important to think about as constraints? Well, yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I do think that um, it's important when we're thinking about these things to not think, although in some cases it might be that there is some agent that is imposing this constraint on us. In other cases, um, Although the constraint is an effect of what people do, uh, it's not as though there is some particular agent who is, uh, who is intending to impose a constraint. So, so for example, um, if the education system is bad, um, not, not because somebody has set out to purposely design a bad education system and, and deprive us of education, but just because well, you know, the government has other funding priorities or, or whatever. Um, 
that could result in a lot of people being very constrained in their thinking. And, and as I'm thinking about it, that is, uh, there are a lot of problems with that, obviously, but, but one is a problem about free speech that that's actually depriving them of this, uh, of this freedom. Um, so, uh, so I, I think what you said is really plausible as long as we're attentive to the idea that these constraints can result from more, um, structural kinds of facts and not just somebody who sets out to introduce a constraint. So saying the kind of distinction between a maybe kind of more inherent or biological, uh, constraint versus a societal one, would that relate to possibly the idea of, uh, you can't kind of choose what kind of country or race or gender you're born into, but the idea that then constraints may be placed on you or kind of just you might have constraints on you in terms of the experiences you can think about given your position in society. Right. Um, so it is the kind of thing you have in mind, like um, it, it, it might be in some sense impossible for someone in a privileged position to understand the experience of someone in a, in a more subordinated position. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that you were talking a bit about the kind of people not having the words to describe things that were happening to them, but the opposite of people not having words to describe things that were happening to other people. Yeah, um, I think that's, that's a very interesting question. And I think there are a few points of contact with things we've been talking about. So, and I'm not sure exactly where the best place to locate this question is, but let me just mention a, a couple of things. Um, one thought is that mostly um, a, a lot of recent work in philosophy of language and philosophy of mind, when they talk about meaning or mental content, like the contents of thoughts, they have in mind something truth conditional, referential. So when Putnam says the brains and bats can't think about trees, he means uh, they they can't. They can't refer to trees. They can't get an idea or a word that is about this, this kind of entity. Um, so uh, from this point of view, meaning is a fairly coarse-grained kind of thing. Like there might be different ways of thinking about trees. You know, your way might be different than, than my way in some sense, but they're both about trees. And what Putnam is really interested in is this aboutness. Um, I, I think that it's pretty plausible that even someone in an extremely privileged position can come to think about oppression. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't follow from that that they fully understand it or that they understand it in the same way uh, as someone who's actually experienced it. So in order to do, to, to, uh, to situate this, this thought um, in the kind of dialectic that I'm engaging with here, we might have to think again about how we should think about meaning or how we should think about concepts and understanding. So it might be that in some cases we can get an idea about something, an idea of that thing that, that refers to that thing a word that, that refers to that thing, but we still can't think about it in the right kind of way. 
and that can really matter. Um, people have actually made something like this point in thinking about the sexual harassment example, um, because they've said, well, they did have a way of thinking about this phenomenon. Um, uh, uh, for example, uh, chasing around the desk is, is one locution that describes sexual harassment in some sense, but it doesn't seem to describe it adequately. It doesn't really capture the phenomenon. So, um, so this is a point that has been that has been made in this literature that it, it it matters to some extent what we think is lacking. Is it just the 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 uh, an ability to refer or to think about that thing at all, or is it something more fine grained than that, like thinking about it in a particular way? Um, so if we thought that that um, in your example the the privileged person is lacking some kind of important conceptual resource, we'd have to think about these conceptual re resources in this more fine-grained kind of way, and and maybe we do need to do that. So that's one that's one place to uh, to locate this kind of issue. So the, I think another another place where this might matter. And again, this, this, um, this engages with some issues that have arisen in, um, in feminist philosophy of language in particular, about how to think about linguistic communities. So one idea might be um, all English speakers share some kind of communal linguistic resources, the resources of the English language. But it might matter for some cases, it might be worth thinking in terms of uh, uh, smaller kinds of linguistic communities. So it might not be crucial that for some purposes that I be able to say everything to everyone in a way that they'll understand, as long as I can say things to some people who, have, who perhaps have shared similar experiences or, or identities. And so allowing particular groups to develop their own sets of conceptual and linguistic resources might matter here too. I think there are a lot of interesting questions about when and why it might, it might matter to be able to communicate more widely and, and to win those issues about uh, sort of common universal understanding or as, as close as we can get to that might matter for, uh, for free speech as I'm thinking of it. But for some purposes, it might be good enough just to, uh, if, if I can talk to just a few people, even if I can't talk to everyone, that might be enough to, uh, to, to, help, to put me in a position to develop the conceptual resources I need and to meet some communicative needs. So going back to the idea more of it's a spectrum rather than a rather than binary to so the spectrum of constraints might also be worth considering. Yeah, that's that's right, and, and it's kind of a different spectrum here mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's not just then more or less; it's um, uh, in what circles, uh, if that if that makes sense. Like like, how widely is this kind of language going to be understood? Um, do you think you could maybe talk a bit about how? Uh, so we've talked a bit about how maybe the marketplace of ideas concept is it's possible that that's maybe not the most useful way of accessing truth. Um, does that mean that uh, inserting certain kinds of content constraint might actually improve our acquisition of truth in some way? Or um, 
yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's not something that we would consider a content constraint. Maybe that's kind of a different sort of idea. But yeah, well, um, so here is what here is what I think would be an interesting possibility. A lot of people have thought that experts play a particularly important role in shaping our conceptual and linguistic resources. This seems especially plausible if you're thinking about scientific kinds of cases, like uh, maybe there's some sense in which, um, well, I'll speak for myself, but, but me at least, I, I don't know uh, what a, a quark is. I don't completely know what that word means. I know it's some subatomic particle. Is it a particle? See, I, I really don't know what this means, but I can use the word. Um, and I, I've got some kind of, some kind of way of talking about these things if I ever needed to. Um, but that's in virtue of what the experts are doing. Like that, there are people who really understand this and, and my meaning, what I do by this word depends on them being uh, on, on what they're doing and their expertise. So it's, more, it, it's quite plausible that something like this happens with a lot of science, in a lot of scientific cases. But if you think about uh, terminology related to particular, um, uh, particular periods in history or particular kinds of arts or music and, and so on. It may be that a lot of people use these words without fully understanding them in some sense. And so they're, they're depending on what the experts can do. And that gives the experts some kind of power over the meaning of this word. Uh, it's their theorizing that shapes what this word means for everybody, for the non-experts too. So if you have that kind of idea, if you find that convincing, it might matter a lot who we let into the position of expertise. Uh, exactly what makes someone an expert for these purposes is another interesting and difficult kind of question. But it might just be they can convince people, people uh, defer to them, as, as people sometimes say in this literature. It might not require them to be really the most objectively great authority about this subject matter, as long as they're persuasive, uh, as long as they have a kind of position of authority on it. So, for example, it might be that, uh, that letting people give lectures at a university or, you know, letting them on a podcast, for example, um, uh, gives them this kind of power of expertise. Then people are listening to them, and then they are shaping what these words mean for everybody. If you have that kind of idea, you might think, well, Mill was wrong. Uh, because just letting everybody talk it out, letting everybody say what they want in any forum they can, um, will let potentially people into a position of expertise that lets them restrict or shape what we mean in ways that aren't going to be good for our freedom of speech. So, for example, um, if we let the racists lecture at universities, that's going to give them power over our communal vocabulary, what we all mean, in a way that's going to, uh, you know, infect us all with their racist ideology, potentially. And that gives us some reason to 
not put them in this position of expertise, to deplatform them or perhaps even cancel them or, or, or whatever. So I, I think if you've taken this idea of content constraint and the relation between uh, adequacy of conceptual and linguistic resources and free speech seriously, and then if you also are attracted to this idea that being in a position of expertise can give you power over our communal conceptual and linguistic resources, that should make us think very carefully about, um, uh, about ideas about deplatforming or, or who we allow to present themselves as an expert. Just to uh, maybe clarify that a little bit more, uh, is, so we're maybe talking about experts less in the common sense of uh, a technical expert as someone who has maybe more true beliefs than someone else, but maybe someone who's treated as an expert by society. Yeah, exactly. So there are some big issues here about how we should think about what expertise is or what expertise is for the purposes of having the ability to, to shape our meanings and our, and our concepts. So somebody might think, well, uh, just being listened to isn't enough. You have to actually have knowledge and, and be an expert in the, as you said, the, the true beliefs kind of sense. Um, but it does seem plausible that if, the, if people are, uh, you know, have, have this platform, everyone listens to them, everyone goes around speaking as if they're right, that's, that, that is a kind of expertise that, that is going to matter for some purposes at least. So there's a big issue here, a big philosophy of language, philosophy of mind kind of issue here. Um, uh, but what I think is interesting, I guess, is how the resolution of that, that issue or, or what we think about that issue is going to shape what we think about, um, how we should think about free speech in these kind of cases, whether we should think certain kinds of restrictions on who gets to speak at a university, for example, might actually promote free speech in the end because it promotes better or, or um, a greater degree of linguistic resources um, uh, because allowing them to present themselves as experts would, would undermine some of our conceptual and linguistic resources. That definitely seems like it would increase, uh, kind of, it would be a good conception of free speech that would increase people's resources. The classic question that I even hesitate to ask is, is how do we, how do we discern the experts worthy of, worthy of paying attention to, to the ones who aren't experts in inverted commas here? Well, it's a good question. And, uh, I, I don't have a principled answer for that question. Um, I think that there are a few issues here that, that we might think about. Um, one is the distinction between restrictions on speech that are produced by some kind of centralized power, like a government or a university administration or something like that, as opposed to restrictions that come from below, um, like that, uh, that are not imposed from above by the government, but that are like cancel culture, uh, or it's just something people do. It's not like the government decrees it. It's just people decide to unsubscribe from your from your Twitter or whatever. Um, so 
So those might be importantly different kinds of phenomena for this purpose. So thinking about what the university administration should allow as a matter of policy versus what um, you know, particular student groups or particular academics should, should allow in their classrooms. Those, those, those might be very different kinds of issues. It also is going to come back to a large extent, I think, to this issue we discussed earlier about uh, how important it is and under what circumstances it's important to have a kind of common understanding as opposed to a more splintered or, or um, separate picture of smaller groups that might have their own kinds of understanding. And then what's allowed within that smaller group might be different than what's, what's allowed um, in, a, in a more general kind of setting. Uh, that could matter because it might be that some groups accept different experts and uh, as experts, and, and that might matter to what conceptual and linguistic resources they have. Um, so, so I think whether we think that what, what uh, whether we're thinking in this bigger picture kind of way where there's sort of a, a, a collective set of resources that matters to us all, or whether we're thinking that the resources of individuals or smaller groups is what matters, might, might also shape how we think about this, this kind of issue. So there's a difference between not letting someone rent a hall and take and do a speech versus not letting someone come into a classroom and make the same speech. Yeah, potentially, potentially. Um, people often talk when they're talking about um, uh, academic freedom, about the importance of disciplinary standards, like um, you know that this this isn't regarded by biologists or whatever as as good biology, and so it shouldn't be allowed in the classroom. But maybe it can be allowed somewhere else. And I think there's a way of thinking of that in terms of of freedom of speech. Like it would be bad for biology if we let some ignorant people shape the biologists' conceptual resources. But maybe giving them some kind of platform isn't isn't so problematic. Maybe we maybe it doesn't matter as much um, that that what kind of biological resources the rest of us have outside of the biology context, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just to kind of round up this podcast, it's been very interesting. Uh, I was just going to ask for a kind of closing remark on where you would ideally like to see the kind of freedom of speech. Uh, debate shift is it would it just be to kind of include more of the kind of idea of almost a positive idea of increasing people's resources and slightly focusing less on the negative or is it slightly more than that i i think that in debates about free speech in popular media and in politics often um, there's this kind of assumption that um, any kind of externally imposed restriction means less free speech. I think once you think about it, it doesn't take a lot of thought to realize that that isn't true, regardless of the kind of considerations we've been talking about today. So, so for example, um, we might not want any one person to own all the media outlets in a country because Although that is, in some sense, an externally imposed restriction on that person's free speech, we think overall it's better for free speech if there are different voices and, and that, that, that's, that means more free speech for everyone. Um, likewise, I think with, uh, when we start thinking in terms of 
conceptual and linguistic resources, it could turn out that certain kinds of restrictions make for more free speech overall. Um, it, it might be that we need to take extra steps to ensure that everyone has the resources they need to, to really enjoy free speech. Um, and I think it's, it's an open question and something that needs more discussion and more resources, um, or more discussion and more thought, exactly what we need to do to make that happen, to make sure that people have the resources that they need. Well, just like to thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. It's been fun. Thank you for listening. You can find our episodes on all good podcast hosting platforms and can check out our website for all of our social media links and host information at www.thoughtsuofg.com.